Hello, this is Empires and Civilizations. Episode 4, Onward to Iraq and Syria. About as soon as the Ridda Wars ended, Abu Bakr sent a message to Khalid ibn al-Walid, who was still encamped at Yamama. It read, Proceed to the region of Iraq. Start operations in the region of Ubala. Fight the Persians and the people who inhabit their land. Your objective is Hirah. Khalid's invasion of Iraq would mark the first time a Muslim expedition with the intent of seizing territory would march out of Arabia. But Abu Bakr had just spent roughly a year managing a series of campaigns that established the Caliphate's control over the Arabian Peninsula. Why did he want his armies to keep fighting? The answer lies with Muhammad. During his lifetime, Muhammad revealed that Islam was supposed to guide not just the Quraysh or the Arabs, but all of humanity. Muhammad intended for Islam to become a universal religion. That's why he wrote those letters to the Byzantines, Sassanids, and Abyssinians to attempt to spread his teachings. During the prelude to the Battle of the Trench, while the Muslims were digging the trench outside Medina, Muhammad foretold that the Muslim state would include the lands of the Persians and Romans. At the time, that statement may have been viewed more as a morale booster than prophecy, but Muhammad would be kind of correct. First, the Muslims established their base at Medina. Then, they consolidated their hold over the Arabian Peninsula. Next step, spread Islam throughout the world. However, there may have been a more immediate reason why Abu Bakr ordered an invasion of Iraq. Enter Muthana ibn Haritha. Muthana was a chief of the Bani Bakr tribe in North Arabia. Seeking adventure and riches, Muthana began raiding the edges of Sassanid Iraq. At first, he raided only the periphery of the Sassanid Empire so that he could make quick getaways if he had to, but gradually, his raids became bolder. While the Ridda Wars were raging in Arabia, Muthana's raids were reaching their climax. In early February 633, Muthana informed Abu Bakr of the vulnerability of the Sassanids and the riches of Iraq. After all, the region had strategic importance. The city of Ubala was Sassanid Persia's most important port in the south. Muthana asked that he become commander of his tribe, and Abu Bakr granted that request. With 2,000 men, Muthana resumed his raids, and it was shortly after this incident that Abu Bakr ordered Khalid to march to Iraq. Abu Bakr made sure that Khalid's army would consist of volunteers in order to increase their chances of victory. But before I discuss Khalid ibn al-Walid's campaign, I have to catch up on the history of the Sassanid Empire up to this point. Last time I mentioned the Sassanids, Khazar II had been assassinated in 628, and the throne passed to various members of the House of Sassan in rapid succession until Khazar II's daughter Boran ascended the throne. Boran was forced to yield her father's territorial gains to Byzantine Emperor Heraclius. Still, instability followed, as newly crowned monarchs would be killed left and right until one royal remained. Yazdegerd, who was crowned Yazdegerd III. Although peace momentarily returned to the Sassanid Empire, Yazdegerd III was a mere child at the time of his coronation. The Sassanids were exhausted financially and militarily. They were forced to pay an indemnity to the Byzantines as part of their peace settlement. In addition to the strife that was happening in the royal court, agricultural districts were destroyed by both floods and invading Byzantine armies. Still, the Sassanids possessed large financial resources and were able to maintain well-equipped, well-trained armies, making them formidable foes to the Muslims. The environment that Khalid was about to enter was a low-lying basin covered by the alluvial deposits of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, as well as their tributaries. The water sources were abundant, there was little rainfall in the region. 
Southern Iraq was primarily composed of marshes that released their waters into the Persian Gulf. Agriculture was largely facilitated by irrigation works such as canals. In these fertile lands, various crops such as dates, olives, fruit trees, sugar, vegetables, wheat, barley, and rice could prosper. The marshes were home to even more resources, such as fish, reeds, and water buffalo. Before he arrived in Ubala, Khalid sent a message to Hormoz, the local Sassanid governor. It stated, Submit to Islam and be safe. Or, agree to the payment of the jizya and you and your people will be under our protection, else you will only have yourself to blame for the consequences. For I bring a people who desire death as ardently as you desire life. What was Khalid talking about? Khalid was essentially offering Hormoz three options, the first of which was simply to surrender. Alternatively, Hormoz could simply pay the jizya, or poll tax, which was levied on non-Muslims, and received protection from the caliphate's armies. Hormoz's final option was simply to fight it out on the battlefield. I call these collective options Islam, jizya, or the sword. Hormoz viewed the letter as a threat from a nation that he considered to be inferior, so he chose the sword. Since Kazima, a city almost bordering the Persian Gulf, was located on the route between Ubala and Yamama, Hormoz marched to Kazima. Khalid picked up Muthana and his 2,000 men, and then another 6,000 men along the way, augmenting his forces to 18,000, many of whom were veterans of the Ridda Wars. Khalid was also using his trademark strategy of always having deserts to his rear. This ensured the safety of his lines of communication and retreat. Instead of marching to Kazima, where Hormuz was waiting, Khalid bypassed Kazima and marched towards Hufer, a city to the north. Hormuz was forced to march to Hufer in order to protect it, but as he was doing so, Khalid reversed his direction and was now heading for Kazima. Hormuz forced Marsh's troops back to Kazima. As the exhausted Sassanids arrived in Kazima, Khalid deployed his more mobile troops for battle. The Persian infantry was linked together by chains in order to promote cohesion. The chains also prevented enemy cavalry from breaking through easily. It is because of the chains that the Battle of Kazima is more often called the Battle of Chains, which was fought in early April 633. The battle began with a duel between Khalid and Hormuz. Little did Khalid know that several Sassanid troops were planning to ambush him while he was dueling, but the Sassanid plan failed, and Khalid killed Hormuz. Khalid ordered a general attack, and though the Sassanids just witnessed the death of their commander, they fought well. Eventually, the Muslims were able to break through in several places, leading the Persian wings to withdraw. The Persians who were bound by the chains found it hard to retreat quickly, making them easy prey to the victorious Rashidun army. Despite being fully armored and better equipped, the Sassanids lost. According to tradition, one-fifth of the spoils was sent to the Caliph, while the remaining four-fifths were distributed among the troops. When Yasutir III received news from Hormuz about the Muslim advance, he organized a fresh new army under a general named Karan. As Karan proceeded to Ubala, he received remnants of the army that had been defeated at Kazima. Eager to crush Karan's army, Khalid sent Muthana ahead with scouts, and they informed Khalid of Karan's concentration. Khalid sent a small detachment to plunder Ubala, which was defenseless, then contacted the Sassanid army at the bank of a river. The Persians had their backs to the river, meaning that Khalid could not outmaneuver them like he did with Hormuz. Khalid was forced to fight a set-piece battle, the Battle of the River, at the end of April 633. The battle began with three duels between various commanders, all of which the Muslims won. Among the slain Persians was Karan. Khalid then ordered a general attack. 
The loss of the Persian officers must have had a demoralizing effect on the Sassanids, as their ranks became disorderly. The Persians turned around and made for the riverbank, hoping to reach their boats in time, but the lightly equipped Muslims were able to catch up and slaughter many Sassanids. Again, one-fifth of the booty was sent to the Caliph, and four-fifths were distributed among the Muslim troops. Now that Khalid was making serious inroads into Sassanid territory, he created a team of officials to handle administrative duties. The local population agreed to the payment of the jizya, and they were left unmolested. Meanwhile, the Sassanid court must have been shocked by the two disasters. Still, they had plenty of resources at their disposal. Two new Sassanid armies were raised. The first, commanded by Andr Zagar, was ordered to proceed to Alaja and await the arrival of the second, which was still being assembled. The second army would be commanded by Bahman, one of the top military minds of the Sassanid Empire at the time. By now, Khalid had established a reconnaissance network, and he had learned of these developments. Khalid realized that he needed to engage one of these armies before they could link up, and hastily made for Walaja. The Battle of Walaja was fought in early May 633. Andr Zagar was surprised at the strength of the Muslim army. There were only 10,000 men, and most of them were infantry. Khalid, like always, opened the battle by ordering a general attack, but this time, the Persians were able to repulse this attack. The Muslims were fatigued, and it looked like the Sassanids would win this battle, but at just the right moment, Khalid gave a signal. We don't know what that signal was, but suddenly, Muslim cavalry appeared behind the Persian lines. Khalid had pursued the same strategy as that of Hannibal at Cannae, and Andr Zagar had fallen right into Khalid's trap. The Persians were massacred, and although Andr Zagar managed to escape, he later died of thirst in the desert. Among the Persian survivors of the Battle of Walaja were significant numbers of Christian Arabs who retreated to Ulais, 10 miles away from Walaja and located on the bank of the Kasif River. Khalid initially did not see this as a threat, but he received news that more and more Christian Arabs were arriving at Ulais. In addition, Bahman put another general named Javan in command of his army and sent him to Ulais. Khalid decided to attack before the Persian forces could organize and coordinate. The Battle of Ulais was fought in mid-May 633. We don't know many details about this battle, but the fighting was so fierce and bloody that Khalid had to pray for victory. The Muslims inflicted so many casualties that Khalid ordered a nearby dam to be opened in order to wash away all the blood that was spilled. According to primary sources, 70,000 Sassanids were killed, which was likely an overestimate, but Jaban escaped. Seeing they had lost four straight battles with Khalid, and the Sassanids avoided open battles, allowing Khalid to march safely towards his objective of Hira. After sacking the city of Amgishia, Khalid arrived outside Hira at the end of May 633. Hira was the capital of the Lakhimid kingdom from the 2nd century CE until its annexation by the Sassanids in 602. The Sassanids believed it would be more advantageous to directly control the Arab tribes, but this would have strained diplomatic relations between the Sassanids and nearby Arabs. The Arab king of Hira, Ias ibn Kubaisa, was a king in name only, and the task of defending the city fell to the Sassanid general Azazbeh. Azazbeh decided to buy some time by having his son dam the Euphrates River, and since Khalid was now using the river for transport, this posed a problem. Khalid took a detachment of cavalry and launched a surprise attack, slaughtering the Persians down to the last man. Khalid then opened the dam so that his army could resume its advance. When Azazbeh heard about the loss of his son, he was heartbroken, and withdrew to Tessaphon. Though the remaining Christian Arabs would attempt to defend Hira's four citadels, Hira surrendered in late May 633. All regions between the Persian Gulf and Hira were under the Rashidun Caliphate's control. 
Khalid wrote identical letters to nearby towns, offering them Islam, Jizya, or the sword, and all of them chose to submit and pay Jizya. Khalid made Hira his base of operations, and appointed officers to facilitate the payment of Jizya and create intelligence networks with the local inhabitants. Meanwhile, the Sassanids did nothing, allowing Khalid to annex the region between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Convinced that Tesiphon posed no threat, Khalid continued north towards the Persian garrisons at Anbar and Ainu-Tamar. By the end of June 633, Khalid marched out of Hira with half of his army, about 9,000 men, leaving behind a strong garrison at Hira. Khalid decided to tackle Anbar first. Anbar was a well-fortified city, protected not only by thick walls but a moat filled with water. In addition, the Sassanids had destroyed the bridges over Anbar's moat in anticipation of the Muslim advance. On arrival, Khalid noticed groups of Persians standing on top of the walls. He ordered 1,000 archers to aim at the Persians' eyes, and the Muslim archers were so accurate that the Battle of Anbar is also called the Battle of the Eyes. The Persian commander, Shirzad, offered to enter into negotiations, but Khalid rejected these terms, stating that Anbar would have to be unconditionally surrendered. In order to storm the city, Khalid gathered his old and weak camels. While his archers provided covering fire, he ordered the camels to be killed and piled on top of each other in the moat, allowing the Muslims to cross the moat. Anbar's gate opened, and Assassinids attempted to drive the Muslims into the moat, but the Muslims led an effective counterattack. Khalid was about to order the scaling of the city walls when Shirzad offered to surrender the city if Khalid would agree to let the Sassanids leave in peace. Khalid agreed with the added condition that the Persians left all their possessions behind. This all happened in July 633. Khalid next marched to Aina Tamar, known for its dates, where he discovered another Sassanid force largely composed of non-Muslim Arabs. During the fighting, when the Sassanid center discovered that their commander had been taken captive, they fled followed by the Sassanid wings. The fortress of Ainu-Temur surrendered by the end of July 633. At ainu Khalid found a monastery with 40 boys that were training for priesthood, and these boys were taken captive. One of these boys was named Nusayir, who would later have a son named Musa, and yes, it's that Musa, for those of you who know what I'm talking about. Khalid headed back towards Hirah when he received a call of help from Northern Arabia, Khalid headed for Damat al-Jandal, that same town that had been captured during the expedition to Tabuk. Since then, the leader of Damat al-Jandal had broken his allegiance to Muhammad, and the Rashidun Caliphate could not immediately deal with the situation due to its preoccupation with the Ridda Wars. At the time Khalid was moving from Yamama to Kazima, Abu Bakr had sent a general named Ayyad ibn Ghanam to capture Damat al-Jandal, but now Ayyad had laid a siege of the city that was turning into a stalemate. Ayat hoped that Khalid's intervention could break that stalemate. Khalid left a garrison at Aina Tamar and set off for Damat al-Jandal with 6,000 men. The siege continued for a while, but Khalid succeeded in storming the city in late August 633. The Sassanids realized that Khalid's departure from Iraq was the perfect time to fight the Muslims. By now, Bahman had assembled a new army, but the Christian Arabs were not yet ready. The Christian Arabs were gathering in two groups, one at Muzayah and the other at Sani and Zumail. The Persians were scattered too, with one group at Husayd and the other at Kanafis. Khalid returned to Hira by the end of September 633, deciding on his usual strategy of fighting each Sassanid force separately. Khalid divided his forces into three corps of 5,000 men each. One corps was sent to Husayd, another was sent to Kanafis, and the final corps guarded Hira. In the middle of October 633, the Battle of Husayd resulted in a Muslim victory, and the Persian survivors of the battle fled to Kanafis. 
However, the Sassanids decided to avoid battle with the Muslims and move from Kanafis to Muzayah. Khalid then ordered all his forces to march to Muzayah. During one night in early November 633, the Muslims launched a night attack and defeated the Sassanids again. They quickly followed up on their victory by defeating the Sassanids twice more at Sani and Zumail. Only one Sassanid garrison remained on the Euphrates west of Tesiphon, Firaz. When Khalid arrived at Firaz in early December 633, he found not just a Sassanid force, but a Byzantine force as well. Despite being historic enemies, the Byzantines and Sassanids now united in the face of Muslim invasions. For about six weeks, the two sides merely stared at each other across the Euphrates. The Muslims occupied the south bank, while the Byzantines and Sassanids occupied the north bank. On January 21st, 634, Khalid was able to entice his enemies to cross the Euphrates, and before their crossing was complete, Khalid struck. Thousands of Byzantines and Sassanids were slain, while the rest fled. On January 31st, Khalid's army moved back to Hira, while Khalid secretly departed to Mecca in order to perform the Hajj. Khalid ibn al-Walid's invasion of Iraq was an outstanding success. The Rashidun Caliphate received tremendous wealth as a result of his conquests. Khalid's campaigns would cement his status as a military legend. Despite facing larger, better-equipped Sassanid armies, Khalid's use of mobility would prove to be a winning strategy. But Khalid's campaigns in Iraq were not the only campaigns at the time, because in the west, the Rashidun Caliphate launched an invasion of the Levant. Geographically, Syria and the Levant were extensions of Arabia except for the fact that they contained a series of mountain ranges running parallel to the Mediterranean coast. Syria was home to a number of commercial centers that would have provided an economic incentive for the Arabs. In addition, the region had religious significance, as it contained the holy city of Jerusalem, where it was believed that Muhammad ascended to heaven. Similar to the situation in Iraq, Syria was thoroughly weakened by the Sassanid occupation, and the Ghassanid kingdom was destroyed. However, perhaps the most important reason why the Muslims invaded Syria and the Levant was that the region contained Arab tribes that Abu Bakr wished to incorporate into his state. Four commanders participated in the preliminary invasion of Syria, Amr ibn al-As, Yazid ibn Abu Sufyan, Shurabil ibn Hassana, and Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah. Amr's objective was Palestine, Shurabil's objective was Jordan, Abu Ubaidah's objective was Emesa, and Yazid's objective was Damascus. The army set out in early April 634. The overall size of the combined armies was about 24,000 men. It's unknown who was in overall command. Each force engaged in minor skirmishes with the Byzantines. At this stage, the Muslims were not concerned with attacking major Levantine cities. Instead, they focused on raiding the countryside. It appears that, like in Iraq, the four generals were trying to win the support of the local population. But it was clear that they would need help, because Byzantine Emperor Heraclius ordered several legions, amounting 100,000 men according to Muslim sources, to be positioned at Ajnadain, from which they could operate against any nearby Muslim force. In late May 634, just after Khalid ibn al-Walid returned to Hira after his Hajj, he received a message from Abu Bakr. It read, March until you reach the gathering of the Muslims in Syria, who are in a state of great anxiety. I appoint you commander over the armies of the Muslims and to direct you to fight the Romans. You shall be commander over Abu Ubaidah and those with him. Khalid divided his forces in two, leaving half with Muthana, and then headed west with his half. Khalid needed to get to Syria quickly, and there were two known routes that Khalid could take. Option A, Khalid could play it safe and travel southwest to Damat al-Jandal, and then northwest to Syria. 
However, completing this route would take a long time. Option B, Khalid could travel along the Euphrates River, but there would certainly be Byzantine garrisons along the way that would delay him. Khalid chose option C, which meant traveling through a particularly barren, waterless expanse of the Syrian desert and hopping from oasis to oasis. Khalid left Hira in early June 634 with 9,000 men, and unfortunately, the army's water supply ran out earlier than it was supposed to. Legend has it that Khalid had ordered the camels to drink water when he was at Hira. During the march, the camels were periodically slaughtered and the water would be harvested from them. In all likelihood, what probably happened was that the Muslims discovered a water source under the roots of a thorn tree. Either way, Khalid's army survived its perilous five-day march roughly intact. The first Syrian city to be captured by the Muslims was Suwa, where they gathered food, water, and supplies. The next city, Iraq, surrendered after a siege. The generous terms offered by Khalid, which merely demanded the payment of jizya, induced the inhabitants of nearby cities to peacefully surrender. Khalid's first battle on Byzantine soil was at Karyatain, where the local inhabitants fought but were defeated. His next stop was Huarin, 10 miles away from Karyatain, where the local inhabitants fought again but were defeated. Khalid moved through the Pass of the Eagle, about 20 miles away from the urban center of Damascus. From the Pass of the Eagle, Khalid moved to Marj Rahit, a large Ghassan town that the Muslims raided. Khalid then sent a message to Abu Ubaidah asking him to meet at Bosra while heading towards Bosra himself, bypassing Damascus. Bosra was the capital of the Ghassanid kingdom, and it was garrisoned by a strong force of 12,000 Byzantines and Ghassanids. Abu Ubaidah learned that Khalid would take over upon the latter's arrival, and decided that Khalid shouldn't have to worry about Bosra once he arrived. Abu Ubaidah sent Shurabil and 4,000 men against the garrison of Bosra. Shurabil camped outside the western side of the town. For the next two days, nothing happened. On the third day, Shurabil offered Islam, Jizya, and the sword, and the defenders chose the sword. They sallied out of the city, and the superior strength of the Byzantines and Ghassanids surrounded Shurabil's force. As Shurabil was being encircled, Khalid arrived on the battlefield with his cavalry. But before Khalid had a chance to fight, the Byzantines and Ghassanids withdrew behind the walls of Bosra. The next day, the defenders sallied out of the fort and battled with the Muslims before withdrawing back into the fort again. The Muslims now laid siege to Bosra, which surrendered peacefully in mid-July 634. Bosra was the first major Syrian city to capitulate. Khalid then ordered all corps, some of which were still scattered, to converge on Ajnadain, where Heraclius had concentrated imperial soldiers. But before I talk about the Battle of Ajnadain, I'm going to discuss the nature of the Rashidun Caliphate's army at this time. Muslim soldiers had no uniforms and often wore a captured Byzantine or Sassanid clothing. Unlike other nations of the time, any Muslim could become an officer, and being an officer was not based on social rank, but on appointments. The army implemented the decimal system of organization, which was adopted by Muhammad. Soldiers fought with whatever weapons they had, and many of the weapons were actually taken from the Byzantines and Sassanids. In fact, the whole army was more like a caravan. Women and children were present. One important advantage these armies had over their Byzantine and Sassanid counterparts was that they didn't have to rely on supply lines, as the soldiers could live for weeks on rations. Despite its lack of uniformity, the army was united in its enthusiasm for the Islamic faith. The Battle of Ajnadain began on July 30th, 634, after the Muslims finished their morning prayers. Wardan, the Byzantine commander, opened the battle by ordering his archers to fire volleys. The Muslim archers responded, but since the Byzantine bows outranged the Muslim bows, the Byzantines got the better of their Muslim counterparts. 
The next phase of the battle was a series of duels. One Muslim champion named Durar ibn al-Azwar was so enthusiastic that he went halfway to the Byzantine line, shouted his personal battle cry, and then stripped himself from the waist up. Several Byzantine champions attacked Durar, but Durar defeated every single one. As usual, the Muslims won most of these duels. Khalid then ordered the entire Muslim front to attack the Byzantine army. A hard slogging match ensued until both armies became exhausted and broke contact. The next day, Wardan proposed that he and Khalid meet alone for peace talks. After they met, Wardan had planned for ten Byzantine soldiers to ambush and kill Khalid. However, Khalid had caught wind of the plot the night before due to a renegade Byzantine scout, and instead, ten Muslim soldiers, led by Durar, appeared and killed Wardan. Khalid ordered another general attack, creating another vicious slogging match. As both sides were nearing the point of exhaustion, Khalid ordered his reserve of 4,000 men under Yazid to attack the center. This was the tipping point, as the Muslims were able to drive deep wedges in several places. The Byzantine army was then torn to pieces. The Rashidun Caliphate's victory at the Battle of Ajnadain allowed the Muslims to probe further into Syria. When he heard news of his army's defeat, Heraclius retreated from Emesa to Antioch. It would be a sign of things to come. Khalid encountered and defeated a minor Roman force at Yakuza in mid-August 634 and then advanced towards his main target, Damascus. At the time, Damascus was perhaps the most prosperous city in Syria. It was enclosed by 11-meter-high walls and six gates. The East Gate, Gate of Thomas, Jabia Gate, Gate of Faridis, Kaysan Gate, and Small Gate. In command of the garrison in Damascus was the emperor's son-in-law, Thomas. Thomas's garrison contained about 17,000 men. Although Thomas worked tirelessly to prepare for the siege, he couldn't gather enough resources in time, so he ordered the army to fight outside Damascus, hoping to drive back the Muslims. The two armies met at Marja Safar, the Yellow Meadow, on August 19, 634, in which the Byzantines were defeated and forced to retreat back to Damascus. The siege of Damascus began the following day. The Muslims had about 20,000 men who were divided in order to prevent access to all six of Damascus's gates. For the next three weeks, nothing much happened. Heraclius couldn't let Damascus fall to the Muslims, so as the siege was being conducted, he raised an army of 12,000 men drawn from various garrisons in northern Syria. This relief column soon made contact with Muslim scouts. Khalid placed Durar in command of 5,000 horsemen and ordered him to deal with the relief column. Durar ambushed the Byzantines at the Pass of the Eagle, though Durar was seriously wounded, which demoralized the Muslims. Khalid was then faced with a problem. He could use some of his forces besieging Damascus to defeat the Byzantine relief column, but that would entice the Byzantine garrison to sally out and break the siege. Khalid decided to gamble, taking 4,000 elite horsemen called the Mobile Guard, and this proved to be the decisive blow to the relief column. Strangely, although now is the optimal time for Thomas to attack, he did nothing, perhaps squandering the only opportunity to break the siege. News of the loss of the relief column deeply demoralized the defenders. Only in September 634 would Thomas attempt to sally. His forces poured out of the Gate of Thomas, guarded by Shorebill and 5,000 men. Although the Byzantines outnumbered the Muslims, Shorebill's corps did not move an inch. In the height of the fighting, Thomas was shot in his right eye by the widow of a slain Muslim soldier. The Byzantines picked up their commander and returned to the safety of the fort. Thomas survived, but he swore that he would take a thousand eyes in revenge. The next night, Thomas launched another sally against Shorebill's corps, which was weakened due to Thomas's last sally. 
In addition, minor sallies were launched against the Jabia Gate, Small Gate, and East Gate so that Khalid would be unable to assist Sharabil. The assaults outside the first two gates were unsuccessful, and the assault on the East Gate was repelled due to the intervention of Khalid. But, as expected, fighting was fiercest outside the Gate of Thomas. Miraculously, Sharabil's men held firm, and the Byzantines were forced to withdraw again. This was Thomas's last attempt to break the siege. After several days, a man named Jonah the Lover entered the historical narrative. Jonah was a Greek who was in love with a girl. In fact, they were supposed to be married. However, their wedding was cut short by the arrival of the Muslim army. During the siege, Jonah asked the girl's family several times to hand her over to him, but they refused since they were too busy fighting. Frustrated, on the night of September 18, 634, Jonah lowered himself via a rope near the east gate in order to ask for Khalid's help. Khalid agreed, and in return, Jonah explained that there was a festival occurring that night, meaning that the defenders would be distracted. Wasting no time, Khalid used rope ladders to storm the walls around the east gate and fight his way towards the center of Damascus. Thomas was beaten, but he had one last trick. He knew that Abu Ubaidah desired peace more than Khalid, so he offered to surrender to Abu Ubaidah. Abu Ubaidah accepted the surrender and peacefully entered the city through the Jabia gate. Khalid and Abu Ubaidah met each other at the center of Damascus. Khalid was infuriated that his authority had been circumvented, but he decided to honor the peace. The Byzantines would be allowed to depart with one weapon of their choice, and the raid of Jizya was established for the inhabitants of Damascus. It was agreed that the Muslims would not attack the Byzantines for three days. Jonah, however, did not live happily ever after, as his would-be bride was disgusted by the fact that Jonah converted to Islam. Furthermore, Jonah was helping the invaders by pointing out shortcuts that they could use to catch up to the refugees. Four days after the capture of Damascus, Khalid and his mobile guard rode out of the city, catching up with the unprepared Byzantines at Marjudibaj. First, a Muslim force attacked the Byzantines from the south, and then more Muslim forces arrived from the east, then north, then the west. Khalid personally slew Thomas in single combat. The Byzantines were utterly annihilated yet again. Unfortunately, the Siege of Damascus was the last battle in which Abu Bakr reigned as caliph. On August 8, 634, Abu Bakr fell ill with a roaring fever, and it became clear that he was dying. Abu Bakr needed to make sure that his death would not spark a succession crisis like Muhammad's death had. Of course, there were no established mechanisms for nominating a successor, so Abu Bakr had to contemplate what was the best way to pick a successor. In the end, he handpicked his successor, Umar. Before he died, Abu Bakr asked how Muhammad was buried. Being informed that Muhammad was dressed with three garments while laid in his coffin, Abu Bakr ordered that only two garments be used. On August 22nd, 634, Abu Bakr passed away. And so Umar became the second Rashidun Caliph, inheriting the leadership of the Islamic conquests in the process, and bold leadership was extremely necessary as the titanic clashes that would forever change the situation in the Middle East were just around the corner.